So Tom's going to open up God's Word. I'm just going to pray for you, Tom, if that's okay. Yeah, thank you, Jesus, so much for Tom. Thank you for who he is in you. And um, thank you that you've just given him such a great um, skill and talent to open up your Word and make it accessible to, to us. So I pray that you will really bless him as he speaks and that you'd open our hearts to everything that he's got to say to us this morning. Amen. Morning, everybody. Um, it, firstly, it's just a real privilege to be here for the second service, to see people who've clearly had a lion, who are used to having lions. Um, <laughs> it's, great to, it's great to be here. I don't normally get to get to the second service, so it's really nice. It's so, it's so encouraging, firstly, to see, new, to see older faces, but to see so many new faces as well. It's so incredible to see um, how God is growing us as a church, really looking forward to when we can sort of all get back together, that'll be really exciting. But um, yeah, so uh, my name's Tom. Uh, if you don't know me, um, we've been part of Life Church for six, seven something years. Um, I'm married to Danielle. Uh, we've got Ruben, who's eight. Um, I'm a primary school teacher, so I also feel very relaxed at the moment because it's August, and August is the best month to be a primary school teacher. Um, <clears throat> So, yeah, so as Hannah said, we're going to carry on this morning. It's a real privilege to carry on our series on the Songs of Ascent. Um, so it's a collection of 14 um, songs from the Book of Psalms uh, that we've been working our way through. They were sung on the sort of annual pilgrimages up to Jerusalem and Mount Zion. And they're all from the same sort of collection. But what we're discovering as we work our way through them is that there's some real diversity among these songs. It's a bit like an album of, of songs um, some real diversity amongst them. So some are um, singing praise to God, some are reflecting on what God has done for the, his people. Uh, but the psalm we're going to look at today is quite a different one. Um, it's, firstly, it's a psalm of Solomon. Um, so he wrote many of the Proverbs, the uh, book in the Bible that's full of um, observations about sensible, godly wisdom, um, living and wisdom. Um, and today's psalm is a bit more like that than lots of the other psalms that tend to be um, more like songs of praise and those kind of things. So it's a psalm of two halves. Uh, first, the first half I found much easier to read than the second half. The first half is um, sort of following that principles of godly living, um, setting out some really sensible, easy to understand things. Uh, the second half I found much trickier. Um, to be honest, it felt like a bit of a punch in the gut when I first read it. But as we unpack it this morning... Um, as we look at what it's actually revealing to us, um, it shows us an amazing truth about who God is and our relationship with God. Um, so, more of that to come, but um, let's start by just getting straight into the passage. So, it's Psalm 127. Um, I'm reading from the NIV, um, but it'll come up on the screen, but Psalm 127 if you've got your Bibles. So, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand and watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. So, the psalm starts by outlining the futility in trying to do things in our own strength without God's direction or help. It says that 
if we try and do these things in our own, in our, by ourselves, we do it in vain. That we won't build anything that satisfies or lasts, or, and what we're trying to protect and guard will remain vulnerable. Now, most of us in here probably have got little experience in building our own houses or guarding cities. I would imagine that most of us haven't done that. My experience of building tends to be a flat pack, and that's about where it finishes. So, but I think these two images of building and protecting are still really, really helpful images, um, even if we've not built a city or built a house or guarded a city. Um, because I think a lot of our energy and a lot of our effort actually goes into doing those two things, into building things or protecting things. We might try to build a career or a reputation or build our own knowledge or our own possessions. We might desperately try to protect what we already have. We might worry about how our actions might affect what people think of us. Or we try to protect our health or worry about what will happen if we lose it. These aren't bad things in themselves, but what the psalmist is saying is if we try and build things or protect things in our own strength, in our own effort and without God, then we are wasting our time and our energy. I think sometimes we can hear that, of doing things with God and not doing it in our own strength and take it to mean that we need to be totally passive, just sitting back and doing nothing. But I don't think that's what this passage is getting at. It doesn't say building or protecting is a waste of our time. But doing it alone is a waste of our time. God doesn't want us to be like passengers in a taxi, sitting back, letting someone, do it, someone else do it all, arriving at our destination with really no clue how we got there. We're not letting go and letting God. Instead, we're driving forward by faith. We have the privilege of being able to drive the car we could go where we want, but God knows what's best for us. He knows the quickest and the safest route. So he wants us to take it, and he, knows, and he provides us with the tools we need to get there. The equivalent of giving us a reliable car and some directions, good directions for how to get to our destination. We can go our own way if we want, but to choose to do so is foolishness. Actually, to do anything other than this is a sign of arrogance and pride on our hands and is a sign that we've forgotten where our ability to do literally anything at all um, comes from. Everything we have, every gift, every talent, every possession we have, comes not because we've done something or because we've earned it, but because God has given it to us. Jesus outlines this in black and white in John chapter 15, verse 5. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's not apart from me, you won't do quite as well, or apart from me, you'll be quite average. It's apart from me, you can do nothing. In God, we get what we don't deserve, which is incredible because God is gracious, kind, and a generous God who gives us so much. And actually admitting that our achievements, our gifts are not our own is quite a bittersweet, quite a tricky thing to do. We actually quite often get quite a lot of comfort and pride and confidence, self-confidence from the things we feel we've done well. But if we believe anything else, if we believe anything other than it's all from God, then we're deceiving ourselves. It reminds me this of an amazing element to God's character. He's not just the creator, but he's also the sustainer. Creation isn't something that God did once and then sat back and relaxed. If God stops sustaining the universe 
it would collapse in a nanosecond. It's not something we think about very often, but it's true, and it's really scary. Creation is dynamic. It's reliant on God's constant care and attention. Hebrews 1, chapter 3 says, he is sustaining things by his powerful word. Andrew Wilson, in his book on God's character, Incomparable, which I've got here, I can thoroughly recommend it as well. It's a really amazing book that teaches so much about who God is and his character. I've been using it in my quiet times and it's brilliant. Anyway, he describes it like this. He says, if I were to make a model or a cupboard or a computer, I do not need to keep sustaining their existence because once I've built them, they stay there unless something destroys them. They have an existence which is independent of their maker. But if I make a sound, like singing a note, the sound stops as soon as I stop making it. The sound, in fact, only exists because of its relationship with me and has no existence of its own. The universe is like that. If God stopped sustaining it, it would have no basis to continue being there. Knowing that God is the sustainer as well as the creator is humbling. It helps us to realise how reliant we are on God and how foolish self-reliance is. But we can also use this truth to take the pressure off ourselves, to release any anxiety and worry we hold on to. Timothy Keller puts it like this. If you know that the one who loves you unfailingly is in complete charge of history, you will sleep well. And if you are overworked and overstressed, you are forgetting who God is. We live in an anxious culture and an anxious society, a society that's full of that anxious toil, desperate to try and build something impressive or to protect what we have. But it's all really built on a foundation of us. What will happen or what will people think of me if I don't do this or if I don't do this well enough or if I don't do this as well as the person next to me, if I'm not quite as good as that person? We can quickly fall into the trap of verse 3. A cycle of rising early, of staying up late, desperately trying to do more and more and more. A quick glance at the book of Proverbs shows us that working hard is a good attribute to have. But the amazing discovery we make when we know that God is the sustainer, that everything we have from God is from God, is that when we work, we don't work alone. That the pressure isn't on us. We work as builders on a house that God is building. And knowing this has to release some of the pressure, worry and anxiety that we put on ourselves and our own efforts. So how do we do this? What does it look like to build a house but let God build the house? It can sometimes feel like a bit of a contradictory thing. How do we do something but let somebody else do that? How do we avoid doing things in our, neither doing things in our own strength or being passive and doing nothing. Jesus talks a little on this theme in John chapter 15. And he uses the, used the illustration of the vine and the branches. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We've already read. If you do not remain in me, you are like the branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
We're called to be branches, attached to the main vine, producing fruit, but reliant on being attached to the main plant to hold us up, to give us the nutrition we need to stay alive, rather than sticks that look similar, but because they're not attached to the source of life, um, are left, as Jesus says, to be thrown into the fire, to wither. I think it's interesting that in those verses, Jesus gives us one practical illustration here of how to remain in me. In verse seven, he says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you. A key to remaining in Jesus, to build, but to build where God wants us to, to build what God wants us to, is to remain in his word. It's surrounding ourselves in God's words. Not just reading it or hearing it, but seeking to let it change us, to shape us, um, and to teach us. It's about finding regular time to read his word, to listen to his word, listening to songs that are full of his word, reading books and listening to talks that explain what his words mean and how they might impact our lives. It's about spending time with our brothers and sisters, whether that's at life groups on a Sunday morning or other times um, during the week, and talking about his word, learning from others and the different ways they see things. None of these things are particularly new or groundbreaking things. They probably come up just about every week in every life group across Life Church when we get onto the how do we question. But they're things that we can often get a little bit lapsed with. They're things that we, but they're things that we are really, really key if we want to remain in him. If we want to be branches, not sticks discarded into the fire, then Jesus says we need to remain in his word. And those basic, simple, fundamental things are really easy way, really good ways that we can easily forget um, of doing that. So, second half of this chapter moves on to talking about children. And I think the first thing that really stood out for me when, we, when I read this is the high value it puts on children. They're described as a reward and a heritage. But I particularly like the image of them as being like arrows. Our children and young people are not trophies to show off or pets to pamper and to spoil, but they're highly effective weapons to take into battle, to carry and to sharpen and to fire ahead of us when the time is right. In these times, arrows would have been the most effective weapon. You could fire them ahead of yourself, um, far more effective than having a sword or something like that. The bar we set for our children and our young people shouldn't just be, let's get them through their school years without falling off the rails. Uh, But our goal should be to encourage them and sharpen them to be effective weapons that we can fire off into their schools, into their swimming lessons, into their sports or their drama or their gymnastics or whatever clubs it is they're doing. And I think this is something that we should regard as a whole church responsibility. Those of us that are parents shouldn't just be leaving it down to the kids or the youth work teams. Um, Those of us who are on the kids and the youth work teams shouldn't see it as something that is only on our radar when we're on the rotor. And if you don't fit into those two categories, which is probably quite a lot of us here today, Um, you still have an amazing role to play. Whether that's by praying for our children and our young people, just by talking to them, um, by bringing words and pictures and encouragements from the front on a Sunday morning as well is another really, really powerful thing that 
even if it looks like they're not listening, will be going in. All of these things, all those things that we can do, will and do make a huge difference. We try and sharpen our children and our young people to prepare them for their mission. And their mission is as dangerous and effective weapons um, in the spiritual battle that we're on. But I also found this section of the chapter very challenging. And to be honest, pretty difficult to read at first. To, re- to read that sons are a reward from God and blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them is brilliant and a lovely thing to read if your quiver is full of arrows. You can thank God for what he's done and you can give him the glory. But what if it isn't? If you'd asked me when we were first married what our plans were, I'd have said it would be to have two, three, maybe four children. I grew up as one of three brothers. Danielle, my wife, has one sister and two brothers and we wanted the same for our children. But the reality of our story has been quite different. With a few ups, but plenty of downs. Started when we discovered that Danielle suffers from a condition that makes pregnancy unlikely. Initially, we were a little bit disappointed, but quite hopeful that medication would help. Two years later, after multiple tests, courses of medication, consultant appointments, prayer and tears, we were told that we had reached the end of our options for having a baby. Sometime later, we began the adoption process, and the happy conclusion of that was the arrival of Reuben when he was 10 months old. But then a familiar 18 months followed again as we tried unsuccessfully to add to our family by becoming pregnant. And after that, we've suffered the pain of a failed adoption. I absolutely love being Reuben's dad. It's an amazing privilege um, that I wouldn't change for the world. But the journey to get us here and the journey since then has been really tough. I couldn't describe my quiver as being full of arrows. And so reading verses like this is tough. So what does that mean for those of us who are in that boat? If the man whose quiver is full of arrows is blessed and won't be put to shame when they contend with their enemies at the gate, and if children are a reward from God, what does it mean if you've not been rewarded in this way? Does it mean God's punishing you? Does it mean you're not as worthy of this reward? I guess the first answer to that question is that our actions or our choices could be having an impact. And God could be choosing to hold something back. Or the choices we're making are having a direct consequence on what's going on. But I don't think that's what this particular passage is getting at. It's not saying children are a reward from God. So if you've got less children than the person next to you, you need to take a look at yourself and work out why. Or, alternatively, it doesn't mean that you've got a right to be cross with God. Or that if you have children, you're in his good books. I think we need to look at the second half of this psalm in the light of what we've read in the first half of this psalm to really understand what's going on here. If we can say that literally everything we have is from God, from the fact that the sun rises in the morning to the fact that we have oxygen to breathe... Um, This comes not because we've earned it or not because we've done something particularly special, um, but just because God is amazingly kind and gracious, then we can apply it to this issue as well. Someone whose quiver is full of arrows hasn't earned it because in God, we get what we don't deserve. We all get far more than we deserve. 
This amazing truth is right at the very heart of the gospel. It's what separates Christianity from every other faith and religion. Jesus died on the cross so that instead of getting the punishment our sins deserve, our slate is wiped clean and we get to be called children of God and spend eternity with him. So we can't read this passage and say or think, I've not got children, therefore I'm less worthy because our worthiness has got nothing to do with it. Our worthiness is all about Jesus. So that still leaves me with two problems though. Firstly, if it's not because of that, if it's not because I'm being punished or because I've not done things well enough, why not? Why hasn't God done this thing for me that he's done for lots of other people? This good thing, why doesn't, hasn't God done it? And secondly, how do I deal with the disappointment? How do I cope with and live with the disappointment of not getting what I wanted, not getting what I'd dreamed of? So first question, that why not, is an answer, a question that I don't know the answer to. Um, and I don't think I ever will know the full answer to it. It's a journey I've been on, and it's a journey that I think I'm still on, of understanding a little bit more about why not. I've read books that help me to understand it all a little bit more. I can recommend God on Mute by Pete Gregg, uh, Disappointment with God by Philip Yancey, if there's something that you're working through as well. I can see the ways God's used the journey we've been on to do good things, to teach us things, to strengthen us as a couple. Obviously, the fact that we've been able to adopt Reuben is an amazing blessing to come out of it and something that wouldn't have happened otherwise. But none of those things give me a concrete answer as to why. And I don't think I'll ever properly know the answer as to why. But I don't think that means I can't get to a place where I can cope with that disappointment, where I can still be blown away by what God has done for me and what he has given me, rather than allowing myself to be defined by one thing and focusing on what I don't have. That, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't be disappointed or that we just have to put a brave face on and look on the bright side of life. We can still take our disappointment to God. He can handle it. This book, Psalms, is full of examples of that happening, full of examples of people do it, doing that. Our enemy doesn't want us to do this. He would much prefer us to think that we can't trust God with our pain or our disappointment. He'd much rather us try and bottle it up and cover it over rather than take it to God and deal with it properly. Sometimes we might not even know how to express our pain. And actually, this book of Psalms is a really, really good place to go if you're feeling like that. I found um, the Psalms are often an amazing way of being able to put into words what I don't have the eloquence or the intelligence to express, whether that be disappointment with God or amazement at God. That's actually something we see Jesus himself do. Famously, he's on the cross about to die, we see him quote Psalm 22, when he shouts, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We can and we should take our disappointment to God. He wants us to, and he wants us to do it so much, he's given us some amazing tools in that book of Psalms um, to help us to do it. So, in the sort of how do I cope with it question, I kind of had a bit of a light bulb moment with it all. Um, it was a few years ago, and it was shortly after our second attempt at adoption had broken down, 
And weirdly, it was as I was putting the washing out on the line. It's not normally a place where I experience great spiritual breakthrough. Um, it's normally a place where I listen to a cricket podcast. But it was a really amazing example of God just breaking through, the Spirit being kind enough just to meet me where I was, where I happened to be. I hadn't performed this great prayer to start off with. I hadn't um, got myself in an amazing place. I was just putting the washing out. But all of a sudden, I felt God show me lots of, um, and a real sense of, if this is what God has for me, then that's okay with me. All of a sudden, I felt like God showed me lots of what I did have rather than what I didn't have. And I was filled with a real sense of peace about it all. It doesn't mean settling for second best. It doesn't mean being okay with this sort of lower grade thing. It's not like when your mum comes home and you're really looking forward to some Coca-Cola and she brings home roller cola instead and says, just be grateful that you've got any cola at all. And you have to go, thanks mum. Yeah, it's really great. Um, it's not like that at all. We don't have to settle for second best. I found the more I've been able to reflect on what God's done for me, the less I feel like that disappointment has to define me and dominate how I feel about God. And the, less I can, the, less, the more I do that, the less I compare what I have with what others have. I don't think that's just the power of positive thought or blindly ignoring all the bad stuff to always look on the bright side of life. But the more I reflect on God the creator, the sustainer, the God the provider, God my father, the bigger my gratitude gets and my gratitude to him gets. And sort of almost without realising it, almost without trying, the smaller my disappointment gets. As the first part of this psalm shows us, everything we have is from God. Even things that seem so basic that we take them for granted are stunning miracles when you focus on them. The fact that I mentioned earlier that this morning the sun rose and it did yesterday and it will do again tomorrow is an amazing, incredible miracle. The fact that we have oxygen to breathe and just the right amount is incredible. There's millions and millions and millions more examples of that kind of thing. Before we even get onto the material things that God has given us, our jobs, our families, our homes, there's the fact that we get to have an intimate relationship with God who has done all this. With the same God who's done all this stuff, we get to have an intimate relationship with him. The beautiful way the Holy Spirit leads us, guides us, gives us all the gifts that we need. I don't have time this morning even to scratch the surface on all the things that we can be grateful to God with. But I have genuinely found the more I've been able to do, do that, the more I've been able to focus on what God has done for me and who God is, the stronger the sense of, if this is what God has for me, then that's fine with me, has become. And the less I've been filled with that sense of disappointment as what's, of what's happened. So I think as we finish, um, and I'll let Luke and Hannah decide how we finish particularly, but I think the best way for us to leave this building this morning is to just go with a real sense of reminding ourselves that unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labour in vain. Let's leave being thankful that we don't have to labour in vain, that God does build our house, that God does protect our city and he does give us what we don't deserve and he does sustain us. So I'll finish by just praying for us. It'd be really great to pray for us um, and then we'll finish our meeting. 
Yeah, Father, I thank you that um, we don't have to do anything. (laughs) You've done it all for us, Father. I thank you that everything we have is from you, that you're the God who who made us, you're the God who sustains us, you're the God who keeps us going. I thank you that you give us so much, um, but I thank you, Father, that you are there to walk us through the, the disappointments and the things that we don't have as well, Father. I thank you that you, your spirit is there to guide us through. Um, I thank you that we don't need to be disappointed in what we don't have, that we can reflect on how amazing you are, but I thank you that you are an amazing God who loves us and is with us with a disappointment as well. I pray that we will be a people as we leave this morning that really encourages each other and really builds each other up in that as well, Father. I pray that we will um, comfort those who need comforts, that we will build up those who need building up and that we will and be a people who really push each other to know you more and more and more. Thank you that you are an amazing God who the more we find out about, the more we know, um, the more we're blown away with. Um, and just to help us to be a people that really build each other up in that. Amen.